this issue of what is true today. And so I pray that you would guide us, guide our thinking and help us to understand because we would like to know and be living according to what is true. So we commit that and this endeavour into the hands of God this morning. Amen. See, one of the things which is distinct about today is the capacity that any person's opinion can go out to the whole world, can reach the whole world. Now, people have always had their unique opinion, but now their unique opinion can travel anywhere in the world. And so the battle of whose opinion is correct is way more visible and intense than it has ever been. The battle for truth is a very big battle these days. And we find that there's people way more powerful than we can even understand who have resources to influence opinions which they've never had before in the history of the world. We have people who own news services and social media platforms and they can pump out stuff which fits in with their preferred editorial policy in an unprecedented volume and scope and reach. And they have the capacity to censor opinions they don't like as well. And the skills that they use for influencing people's opinions have been developing in sophistication and power for decades. And advertisers have learned a very interesting thing that you can bypass the critical thinking processes and you can influence people by directly appealing to their emotions. You don't have to go through all the necessary, uh, convince them with the facts and the figures. You can just go straight to emotions and the most obvious example is the Toyota ad and we know what they are, what is their ad? Oh, what a feeling. Absolutely no technical information at all. Only a warm emotional experience which somehow is connected with a Toyota vehicle. <laughs> well, that's what they want us to think. And that art of advertising has been fully employed by commerce, it's been fully employed by politicians, it's been fully employed nowadays by governments and sadly also by scientists. And as normal citizens, one of our most important skills that we need to be working on, practicing and thinking about is the capacity to, to distinguish between marketing and truth-telling. It's just marketing. Is it truth-telling? Working that out is very important for us. Take, for example, the news is often referred to these days as infotainment. It hits the nail on the head and they're saying that information, news information, is now primarily presented so that you will feel a certain way, that you'll feel something. No longer is it presented in a balanced way, uh, consider this, consider that, uh, this looks like the best way to go. No, it's all about making you feel something. And that's because we receive thousands of messages daily. 
and we can only digest a small portion of them. And the advertisers know that if they're going to capture your attention, they're going to have to make you feel something, create an emotional response in you, arouse a feeling. And boy, haven't mainstream media had a feeding frenzy over what they considered this legitimate reason to make us all feel afraid and anxious called COVID. And those in the counselling industry have re revealed that their clientele since that has gone up amazingly because of the anxiety engendered, because of this capacity to make people feel. And wow, now we can make you feel really afraid. And the primary battle in the world is for your attention, for what you will look at on your screens. People are trying to make a living by making you look at their stuff on your screen, their view of reality on your screen. And there's even a newest job around called being an influencer where the only thing a person does is attract your attention. That's all an influencer does. They just attract your attention. And then advertisers piggyback onto that and add their ads and their products alongside of. They add their Toyotas alongside. And everyone's proclaiming, we have the truth. We have the product that will satisfy you the most. We have the way of doing life which will fulfill you. We have the philosophy. We have the theology which is the right one. We have the liberation that you're looking for. We have the satisfaction for your appetite. Now, as we think about that, don't assume that this generation and our kids are facing something that we didn't face because the human heart has never changed. All the digital world is doing is amplifying, making louder the same struggles and issues which have always been around. And as Trevor and I thought about this, we felt led to do a couple of messages about this battle for truth. I dived into the water and, and found it was an ocean, not a swimming pool. It's an enormous subject. You could spend a year on it. And I was wondering, well, you guys haven't got that capacity to hang around in here for a year. Uh, I came to the conclusion, at the heart of it, everyone's claiming that their truth is going to set us free. And so I thought, well, why not look at what Jesus said about this, first of all, in John chapter 8. And uh, we go to John chapter 8, and Jesus is saying boldly there that the truth will set you free, but there's a caveat to that. There's a big prerequisite for the truth setting you free. So let's read it, John 8, 31. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you hold to my teachings. Well, that's only sensible, really. If you want to be set free to use electricity, then you'll live by the teachings of electricity and you'll plug your TV and not your finger into the wall socket. And Jesus is promising here a freedom which flows out of something, out of this prerequisite, out of discipleship. That's where freedom comes from. It flows out of discipleship. It flows out of living according to what the Bible says. It flows out of the Holy Spirit giving you gifts and fruit, love and joy and peace 
and patience and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. It flows out of trying to do justice, out of trying to walk humbly with our God, out of living righteously. It flows out of praise and thanksgiving like we've been doing this morning for all we've received through faith in Jesus Christ. And it flows out of our eternal hope of an eternity with God in heaven. That's a, tr that's a freedom which comes from the truth. So interestingly, in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to these people, but they think they're already free. Just as the people of the world think they're already free, don't they? John 8 verse 33, they answered him, we're Abraham's descendants, mate. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we'll be set free? Never been slaves. And today people want to stand on their freedom from being slaves, but in increasingly coercive ways. How has it come about that Christian rugby players can be called out for being hateful and intolerant for not wearing a symbol of homosexuality? People who call them out think they're the ones who are free and that Christians are intolerant. But really, who's being intolerant? So we know what Jesus said next to the Jews. Verse 34, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And so he's saying that the freedom you think you have is actually a slavery. And what follows after that is a direct worldview versus worldview confrontation. And Jesus saying that if the Jews really were believers, if they really did have a real relationship with God, then they'd be able to recognise that Jesus was God. For example, if I'm a, as a musician, if I have a conversation and someone pops in and says, yeah, I play the guitar, mate. New person comes along, wouldn't be all that long before we realised whether they were a genuine musician or just not. Because there's a common language. They're common understandings. There are common schools. And when you go and visit another church, you find a bond with fellow believers very quickly because you have common values and you have a common way of talking about life and common attitudes and common topics. So John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I've come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. And Jesus points out, that there would be a recognisable bond with himself if they truly were believers because family recognises family. And then Jesus is devastating in his assessment of the Jewish leaders that he's talking to. Verse 43, Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Because he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth. There is no truth in him. And this is just an amazing sentence now. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar 
and the father of lies. And Jesus is here leaving no middle ground for those who consider themselves to already have the truth. They are already or completely encompassed in a lie. Their worldview originates outside of themselves in the devil who is unable to speak the truth. For when he lies, he speaks his native language. Now we know that Jesus did hang around with tax collectors and sinners and he didn't give them the same shrift that he is giving the religious leaders because he doesn't mind people who are open and humble and honest about their inadequacies. That's not what he's against. His greatest opposition is for those who should have known better from their knowledge of the scriptures but have taken pride in their opinions and who believe we've got it all worked out. And to these people, Jesus points out he has a very exclusive claim to truth. Verse 45, Yet because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin if I'm telling the truth? Why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. And the reason you do not hear is because you do not belong to God. And he's just saying it's absolutely necessary to have a relationship with God in order to know the truth. You have to belong to God. Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. You have to belong to God to hear what he says. Truth has to come to us from outside of ourselves. You can't logic it out, you can't intellectual it out, you can't work it out, you can't guess it out all by yourself. You get true truth through belief. So if you don't believe, you'll never get to, to truth. If I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? If I'm telling you the truth. And over the next few verses, Jesus comes to reveal very clearly that he is divine he is God and then he has a divine relationship with God the Father and in that one in that relationship the Father glorifies Jesus and Jesus personally knows and get this he obeys the Father we have a hard time obeying anything Jesus obeys his Father verse 54 if I glorify myself my glory means nothing my Father whom you claim as God he's the one who glorifies me and though you don't know him, I do know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar just like you. But I do know him and I obey his word. And then Jesus reveals that he not only has a current relationship with Abraham, but he is eternal, I am. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, he was glad. Hey, what are you talking about, they say? You're not yet 50 years old. And, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I, say it, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Eternally existing. That's what I am means. I, I always existed. When Jesus made this exclusive claim to be divine, for the people who are listening, that was the last straw. That's such an outrageous claim for truth that they considered him to be demon-possessed. 48, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? And that indeed is the normal reaction of unbelievers. 
when we pass on the claim that Jesus is God. Because they say, you're off your rocker, mate. Demon-possessed, possibly. And they'll do what the Jews tried to do with Jesus when he was a live human being on earth. In verse 59, at this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus slipped away, slipping away from the temple guards. And so let's not be surprised at the strong reactions in Australia these days to Jesus. We have, in fact, in Australia, had an extended period of favour. And we're grudgingly coming to understand that the opposition to the claims of Jesus to be the truth, which sets us free, they're coming to a point where people are starting to pick up the stones. But be encouraged that they couldn't stone Jesus here until God's plan was obeyed to the point of being fulfilled. And they won't be able to stone us until we've obeyed all the parts of the plan which has been made for us before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do, God's, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has for each of us something to do, something to do in his kingdom. And we are completely safe until that is achieved. And so what have we seen so far? That the, the truth will only set you free if you live it out. A car will not get you to the next town unless you get into it and drive it. Truth will not bless you and your life unless you live according to it. And we've also seen that Jesus makes exclusive claims to this truth and that by believing in him and following his teachings, that's the only way to be set free by truth. But there's an enemy, there's an active enemy, the devil is deliberately force-feeding lies to the world. And people believing those lies are going to become more violent when presented with Jesus' truth claims. So the question is, how do we live? How do we live courageously in this changing world? And so I just want to point to two people here, Daniel and Paul. Daniel was a believer who lived, in a, lived a courageous, godly life in a high position within an oppressive regime, within the Babylonian and then the Medo-Persian systems. And he shows us how to live within a system which is not good. And he showed us how to do it without getting involved in the dirty political games. Because, you know, from the very beginning, here comes this guy, he's a refugee, he's been picked to another country, and now he's picked out because he's got abilities to be trained in the conquering empire's public service. But he wouldn't bow down to a very fundamental spiritual allegiance of that empire. He would not eat food sacrificed to idols. And he would not enjoy the spoils of war because all the delicacies that they had at the king's table came because they'd conquered other people and basically stolen their stuff. If we go back to go to Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. See, in those times, it was usual that any food you had was offered to some sort of God. And then there's also the Jewish laws about not eating blood, so there's no guarantee that the meat you got would be kosher. 
and say, well, veggies are a safe bet, aren't they? No problem with the blood. And common sense was, sorry, common life was so woven in with idolatrous worship that every meal was in some sense a sacrifice to some sort of false god. And therefore, the easiest thing is to go touch not, taste not, handle not, best way to go. And God had plans for Daniel. And he blessed Daniel's wisdom here at, at asking to be let off, offered, eating this food offered to idols. Daniel 1 verse 12 says, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. And it only took 10 days to see a difference. And that difference, how big was that? Verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king had questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And that's just that little story there which just shows us that Daniel stayed true to that character for his whole life. He prayed three times a day in front of a window facing Jerusalem, no matter what was thrown at him. He walked in truth, he walked in accuracy, he walked in knowledge due to the fact that he devoted himself to his studies. He worked in an unbending work ethic and righteousness all his life. And God honoured that, saved him from being burned alive, saved him from being eaten by lions. God revealed dreams to him, gave him prophecies of the future, which are astounding. And he's a, he's a shining example for us of how to live a courageous life of excellence without compromising our belief in the exclusive claims of Jesus. And the other guy is the Apostle Paul. So if, if you think we're unique in having these so many voices in the public open space, consider ancient Athens. And I don't know if they would have called it conspiracy theories in those days, but what did they have? Let's look at Acts chapter 17, verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They might not have had YouTube, but they, were, they had real people coming in and they listened to whole piles of ideas. And, and so just like today, we look around and we're dismayed at the quantity of ideas that come through. There's the, the LGBTQXYZs, the, the wokes, the neo-Marxists, the anti-conversion therapies, the freedom. There's, there's piles of stuff. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And now it's a bit of a temptation as, as Christians to want to bash all the alternative truths, to revel in their wickedness and how they are going to hell in a iron basket, to gleefully exult in being the only place where you can find truth these days. If you do it wrongly, it just makes you a hater and a wowser, a permission withholder, hate speech promulgator. But we don't want to compromise either, do we? So what did Paul do? in this situation, in the marketplace of many ideas. Firstly, he assumed the best. He assumed they were interested in finding the truth. 
So Acts 17.22, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I can see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. And Paul found a bridge, a connection point, something within their argument which enabled him to connect with his message. And that's what he did. And I think that's increasingly the call upon us as believers today. He proclaimed. Verse 17. So this, you are ignorant of this very thing you worship and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Oh, I think today Jesus is becoming more and more an unknown God, isn't he? People have so many other alternative gods, none of which... Over time, they find really deeply satisfy their deepest yearnings. And I think they're probably a bit more open to you talking about the unknown God. And so Paul proclaims, and he proclaims what the Bible says, that God is the creator of the world. He creates mankind. He sustains it. And that God has sent a clear message to the earth through Jesus and he's going to judge everyone according to that message. As he talks, all is okay until he claims that Jesus came back from the dead. And then it's obvious, listening time is over from the audience. And so what does Paul do? Get all offended? Get all worried? Get all hurt because they're not listening? No, he just, he just leaves. And he works with those who did accept the message. Verse 32 of Acts 17, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, well, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. And some people became followers of Paul and believed. At some point, the people of the world who live life according to what they can see what they can touch, what they can taste, what they can feel, what they can nut out for themselves, are going to push back. And you talk about something miraculous like a resurrection. People who don't believe miracles can occur, after all, they've never seen one. They're just inclined to ridicule when we mention that Jesus came back from the dead. Because at this point we've moved from just being another interesting worldview to something which can't be explained by human reason. It's just not reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And if your view of religion is limited to what you can reason out, to what you can think through and evaluate from your experiences in life, then you're inclined to consider that that's a pretty preposterous claim. But our message is, there's more to reality than just what you can reason out, what you can see with your eyes, what you can touch with your hands. And for those who are like the disciple Thomas, you just can't find it in themselves to believe because it's unexplainable on how we think life works. Let's look at John 20, 25. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, and he said, oh, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my fingers where my nails are and I put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. And for those who consider that our message is unreasonable, 
and let it know that nevertheless it's correct. Jesus has done the unreasonable. He has done something totally alien to the normal run of life, the normal way things happen. He has performed the miraculous, but it's in no way unreasonable. And it doesn't invalidate our message. God has done something which no human being can do because he is God. He has done something miraculous because he can do miracles. He is infinitely power and powerful. And the God who just had the infinite capacity to create all of life and the principles and the rules by which life runs, he has the capacity to do more creating and to override his normal way of functioning in the world in order to achieve a result. He's done something outside of human understanding, outside of human normal life in sending a perfect sacrifice for the sins of all mankind, allowing him to be crucified on a cross as a payment for those sins, and then allowing him to be resurrected, to come back to life, to show that the price has been completely paid once and for all, so that if you just believe in this miracle, you can spend eternity in heaven with him. And for those who are stuck like Thomas in limiting what they can believe into what they've experienced to their past experience, see what happened to Thomas, John 20, 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was there. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas did. He said, my Lord and my God. And that what Jesus did for Thomas is the same message for all who struggle to understand God doing something beyond human understanding. When Thomas put his finger in the holes in Jesus' body, he did it for all who come after so that they would be able to let go of holding on to only the known and so they could touch the unknown. Make no mistake, Thomas touched the previously unknown. He touched a resurrected person and found it to be true and real. And anyone who responds when Jesus says, stop doubting and believe, and says what Thomas said, my Lord and my God, gets the point, gets to have and know the truth which sets you free. Because Jesus did come back to life. He was resurrected. He appeared to hundreds of people after he came back and then he ascended in time to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Until one day he turns, returns to earth to judge it and claim everyone who has said, like Thomas said, my Lord and my God. As I was thinking and preparing for the message, I got stuck in the so many arguments of apologists so many reasons, so many factors. But I decided I didn't want to confuse you all too much today. 
because you see you can't talk you can't reason you can't persuade people into the kingdom unless the Holy Spirit is working on them and we as Christians don't have to know the answer to every question which a non-believer can come up with and our main task is just simply say this is what the Bible says I can do no more than the Apostle Paul did proclaim whilst we have an audience nurture those the Lord gives us keep moving keep proclaiming let's pray there is a truth that sets us free and we've enjoyed that freedom the freedom of having the Holy Spirit in our lives to bring us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control there is so much life to be had through the truth. So I pray, Lord, that you strengthen our resolve to live the truth, that the, that the freedom of it will just be in our lives and through our lives and will reach out to people around about us. Let us not be dismayed about just telling people we've found the truth and it has set us free. Amen.